0: Well, good morning, it's great to be back and uh, see all of you. We've got uh, some visitors here. It's good to see Mark and Diane Hensler, our missionaries to Egypt here for uh, another two or three weeks, you said, Mark? Two weeks, all right. And uh, you continue to pray for them. And then um, Ned and Marisol. Man, great to have you back uh, from Ecuador. I I couldn't believe it that it's been four years. That's amazing, but uh, great to have you and good to see you folks as well. Um, And we're glad to have you here this Sunday, this summer Sunday. People are still on vacation and that's great. I I hope that you are having opportunity to, to make up for last summer and all of that craziness and that you're able to enjoy time away uh, this summer Uh, but we're glad you're here with us together so you can't have your cake and eat it too ever heard that one before and my question is always why not right (laughs) why not I you know it's come on And uh, well, because when we say that, what we mean is that there are two options available and uh, you can't have both. Can't have both your cake and eat it too because the options conflict with each other. uh, So you can only pick one, right? So when we talk about that, two options, they conflict. You can only pick one, so you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, Scott talked last week about uh, eating ice cream in the evening and trying to lose weight. All right? you- You can't have your cake and eat it. Maybe I should say you can't have your ice cream and eat it too in that regard. It just doesn't work. You can't do both. It may be uh, as you think that through at at any level of school, uh, whether it's elementary or high school or or, uh, college or beyond, uh, if you want to get all A's but stay up playing video games every night till after midnight, it's not going to happen because you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Or how about you're offered a promotion at work with a substantial raise, but you have to work every Saturday. Ah, see, can't have your cake and eat it too. Or how about you want to sell your house? And in this day and age, it's a seller's market, right? That means That the person trying to sell is going to get the best price possible. You're going to get over and above the asking price because it's a seller's market. So you sell your house for big bucks, but at the same time, you want to buy another one real cheaply. Real, I shouldn't say cheap, right? I should say inexpensively. You can't have your cake and eat it too. It won't work have both, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You think cake really well? Uh, yeah, and and I, I don't want to make you uh too hungry before you get home for your uh your meal today, but open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 14. Now, um, we are a text a passage before where Scott was last week. Uh, we are going to do communion, and it talks about communion, though this passage does not teach. It is not intended to primarily teach about the Lord's Supper. Paul is using it as an illustration. We're going to get to that. Chapter 11, another chapter ahead, is when we're going to look at the teaching that Paul shares with the church on the Lord's Supper, on communion, but he's using it as an illustration today. That's not why we skipped ahead for Scott. As we had talked, I knew I was going to be gone last week. We tried to plan ahead, and, and you know how that goes. We got uh, a few extra messages along the way and out of sequence, but it just so happens it does work well because we are having communion. So, I want to read for you. If you'll follow along with me. In your Bibles, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, and we'll start reading at verse 14 down through verse 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, and uh, underneath the chair in front of you, there should be a Bible, and in that Bible, it's page 798, or if you've got your phone or tablet, whatever, ready, uh, follow along as I read. So, verse 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel, Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. That doesn't sound good. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons Two, you cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, as we look at the text this morning, did you see the two options? Verse 21, just in case you didn't. Verse 21 is where the cake and eat it too is, the options. And Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. There it is. That's what the church at Corinth was trying to do. That's what some of them wanted to do. And Paul is talking to them. He says, you cannot have a part in both. There's two options, both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You can't do it. And you may say, well, why would any believer in any church want to participate in the table of demons? Why would they want to participate in the cup of demons? Well, that's a good question. We'll try to look at that today, but that's exactly what was going on. And we've talked about this as that we understand the city of Corinth and all of the plethora of religions, all of the different ways that people were worshiping their God. If you remember back in Acts chapter 17, Paul started, uh, we read about Paul starting the church in Corinth in Acts 18, but in chapter 17, he was in Athens. And he said there were all kinds of gods all over the place. In fact, he said there were so many gods, they even had an idol set up a, a way that they could worship the unknown God because they didn't want to miss anyone. Well, that's the same thing going on in Corinth. And so, as we look at that this morning, that's what was happening. Now, remember, we're still talking about meat, eating meat offered to idols. That's what we've been in ver- chapters 8, 9, and 10 here of 1 Corinthians. And this is about the question, is it okay to eat meat offered to idols or meat sacrificed to idols? So verse 14, Paul begins, therefore, therefore, my dear friends. Now, you've heard this is nothing new, I'm sure. You've heard it said from other speakers for years that anytime there's a therefore, you always have to figure out what it's there for. See, I knew you knew that, right? Well, that's true. So why is it there? Well, Paul has already been going through chapter 8, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 10 and verse 13, which is where I left off. Scott talked about verses 23 to 11, chapter 11 and verse 1, but he, Paul at this point is based on what I have said so far, Paul is saying, therefore... And so, he's about to make a point. He's about to bring a summary, a conclusion, about to wrap up a point at which he's been preaching about. And so here's the outline as we begin to dig into this to see what he's going to be talking about, what his conclusion is going to be. But the outline would be this, verse 14, a sharp command. We're going to see the command that Paul gives right here. And it was pointed. It was a very sharp words that he gave as a command. Verses 15 to 18, a sensible appeal, He's making an appeal to the believers in the church of Corinth. And then verses 19 to 22, a serious point. He's got a point to make that is very serious, that is critical, that the believers in the church of Corinth grab hold of it and understand and make the adjustment that they're transformed by this truth. So, first of all, verse 14, a sharp command. Paul says, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from that's an imperative, it is a command. He's saying, Flee, he's saying, Run away. Yes, we could say, Avoid it, shun it, but it's more than that. Flee means to run away. You know that, absolutely, and that's what he's talking about. Now, you say, Well, what in the world? Why would Paul be going at this? He's talking about. Yes, he's talking about um, whether or not we should be able to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, but flee idolatry. Well, he just gave a list in chapter 10, verses 6 to 11, of some illustrations from the Old Testament uh, of the nation of Israel. He gave some examples, some warnings of things that could disqualify them from the prize. That would knock them out of the race. And Paul warned them. And idolatry was one of those warnings. So when he says flee idolatry. He's picking up one of those warnings. Yes but there's more. And we'll see that in a minute. But he's saying you need to seek safety. You need to get out of there. I was talking with somebody the other day. We we're talking about vacation. What happens when you go down along the uh, Carolina coast, north or south, in August and September, what might you run into? Hurricanes, yes, we all know that. And somebody we we're talking to, they'd gone down, and and as they were going on, everybody was coming off. And Jane and I experienced that at the Jersey Shore one year. Our family was going, and, and, and everybody was driving off the island. Why? Because there was supposed to be a hurricane coming. They were fleeing. They were running away. They weren't hanging around to just see what would happen. Now, we prayed hard, and that hurricane went out to be... To, to see, and we had a great week. But but flee, that's what Paul's saying, escape. And he says, keep on. This is a constant battle. The battle with Satan and, and idolatry and sin never stops. Keep on running away. See how far away you can get. Don't hang around and see how close you can live on the edge without falling into sin. It's almost like he's saying, listen, you guys may feel like you want to have your cake and eat it too, but don't hang around and wait trying to to get both. No, get out of there, run, flee. One writer said, idolatry is like radioactive waste. It requires you to bolt from the area immediately to avoid contamination. Get out of there. But why zero in on idolatry? Well, let's keep moving. Paul gives that sharp command. Flee. Run away from. Get out of there. Leave idolatry in the dust. And, and then he gets to verses 15 and 18. And he, through 18. And he makes a sensible appeal. He's, he's trying to get them to do something. And here it is. Yes, that flee idolatry. Now he's going to bolster the argument. Verse 14, he says, my dear friends. Flee idolatry. Verse 15, I speak to sensible people. My dear friends, sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, he just gave a real harsh command. I mean, he, he didn't mince words. Flee idolatry. But now he says, listen, you're my friends, dear friends, you're sensible people. Paul is balancing that sharp command by appealing to them as friends, dear friends, and as wise, sensible people, as people who will understand what he's saying and see the logic and see why they need to flee idolatry. And he's saying, listen to me and judge for yourselves. And and he's about to ask some questions and give a couple of illustrations again To make the point why he why they ought to flee idolatry, look at verse 16. Because the first illustration he uses to, to make his point is the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, what we call communion. And verse 16 is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. The bread and the cup. The cup representing, symbolizing the blood of Jesus Christ. The bread representing, symbolizing the body of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. And and, and then he says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share in one loaf. You see, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do that this morning. We're going to remember, we're going to do what the Bible tells us, to remember Christ's death until he comes. till Jesus comes again, we are to remember. We are to look back and remember Christ's death. At the same time as we're looking forward, anticipating the return of Jesus to take us, the church, home to heaven with him, he says, remember Christ's death. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper by taking the cup, representative of the blood of Christ, and the bread, representing the body of Christ, we are participating or sharing in the Lord's death. It is regenerating, in a sense, fellowship with Jesus. It is an act of worship. It is an opportunity. It is lifting him up, lifting up Jesus, remembering what he did for us. It is renewing our minds with the truth of the cross. It is refreshing our hearts and our minds about our vertical fellowship with God. You ever get stuck in your computer, you're you're maybe looking for something on the internet and it freezes up and you, and you have to hit refresh or you do something new and you hit the little arrow thing that go and it refreshes and starts it all, all over again. It's kind of like what well, it's not that we've forgotten but we need to refresh our minds because we get caught up in the daily routine of life and it's real easy to forget what Jesus did. Not in the sense that we, we, we have totally put it out of our minds, but we just get busy in life and we don't think about it as we ought. And that's why Jesus says, do it again until Jesus comes again. It's that refreshing of our vertical fellowship between us us. And God through Jesus Christ, but the Lord's Supper also. And that's what verse 17 is about when Paul says, There, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. Who's that? That's us, that's the church. One loaf is the representation of the church because there's one loaf, he says there. We who are many are one body. We, the church, those who know Jesus. Yes, we're many, but we are one body. And he's talking about not just the vertical fellowship with God that that we're refreshing in our hearts and minds that Jesus Christ did for us. But we're also reminding ourselves of the horizontal fellowship that ought to be true of those of us with one another. Each other, the many who make up the church of Jesus Christ. So it's fellowship with our God. It's fellowship with God's people, the church. And then he gives another illustration. Verse 18 Consider the people of Israel. So first he talked about the Lord's Supper. And he says, as you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are participating with Jesus. You are reminding yourselves of his death on the cross. You are worshiping God for his love for us and his sending his son to the cross to die to forgive our sin. But he says, verse 18, you consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. And if you'd go back to the Old Testament and read about the Old Testament sacrifices is read through the book of Leviticus. I know that's a hard one. You have to do that with purpose and intent and say, I'm sticking to this and I'm gonna work through it. You'll get the sacrificial system. You'll see all of the the sacrifices, the sin offerings, and the thanksgiving offerings, and all of the the sacrifices that were to be made, and Paul is saying, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Just like with the Lord's Supper, we participate in Christ's death, so in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, when they made sacrifices at the altar, participated In that, in the same way, he's saying this is the same kind of thing. When the people of Israel brought their animal sacrifices to the Lord, they participated in that sacrifice with God because they would eat some of it sometime. Some of it would be burned up and offered to God. Some of it the priests would eat. But sometimes the the people would eat that meat that had been offered to God. And they worshiped God. They expressed in doing so their union with God. Their obedience to him. And seeking forgiveness in the way that God had told them to. They participated in the altar. Now you say Paul, what are you saying? What do you mean? Well, look at verse 19, and that gives us to the third point. The third point here, a serious point Paul has to make. Verse 19, do I mean then? He's saying, okay, now here's what I mean. Do I mean then? Here's what these two illustrations, the Lord's Supper and Israel's participation in the Old Testament sacrifices. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? Remember, we're still talking. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, 1 Corinthians, about is it okay to eat meat offered to idols, meat sacrificed to idols. So here it is. He says, do I mean then That food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything. Now, back in chapter 8, verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul already said, we know that there's no such thing as idols. Yes, there's that wood or stone or whatever, that animal that people worship, but that's no God. It's not a real God. It's just an idol. But here he's saying something. He says, no, that's not what I mean. But here's what I do mean. Idols aren't real, but demons are. That's what he's talking about. He says, and sacrifices, the sacrifices of pagans, verse 20, are offered to demons, not to God. You see, they were offering the idols and Paul's saying, okay, here's some new information. You're offering, they're offering them to demons. Yes, they say idols. They're not real gods, but to demons. And he says, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. When you eat meat sacrificed to idols as part of a pagan religious ceremony, and that's what some of the Corinthians were doing. Eating meat, offered to idols as part of pagan religious ceremonies, many times in a pagan temple. And Paul is saying, when you do that, you are participating with demons. You are fellowshipping with demons. You are worshiping demons. That's what he's talking about. Now, Scott talked last week, and as we already saw in chapter eight, he's not talking about if you happen to buy some meat at the meat market that had been offered to idle and you take it home and in the privacy of your own home ate that, that's not a problem. Or if you were invited to somebody's home and, and they offered you meat and you don't, you don't ask questions, just eat it. Pass the A1 sauce, please, right? But if you were sitting there in someone's home and they said, hey, just so you know, that's meat sacrificed to an idol, then he says, for the sake of their conscience, the one who pointed it out and maybe the one who served it, then don't partake. But that's not what's going on here. This is different. These people were saying they were partaking of meat that that was being offered to idols as part of the religious ceremony. Some were saying, hey, this is no big deal. We know that idols are nothing. These are false gods. There's no big deal. We can be part of this pagan temple and and this ceremony is no big deal. Paul says, no, you are fellowshipping with demons. This was not just a casual, meaningless steak dinner in a pagan temple. They were participating in demonic activity. They were identifying themselves with demons, the minions of Satan himself, rather than... Worshiping, honoring, lifting up the one true God. And Paul's saying, you can't do both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Because that's what they were trying to do. Paul says, are we trying, verse 22, to arouse the Lord's Jealousy. Are we stronger than he is? Now, when he says that, he's pointing right at those who claimed not to have weak consciences. In a sense, it's a play on word. Are we stronger? How about are we stronger? How about you that don't have the weak conscience? Are you stronger than he is, than God is? Of course not. Can you avoid the wrath of God because you're worshiping, you are fellowshipping with, you are participating in demonic activity? You are identifying as a believer, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the temple of God, and you are participating at the table of demons. You will arouse the Lord's jealousy. First five book of, books of the Bible, we call the, the law, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Penta 5, right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those first five books, the Pentateuch, all references to God's jealousy have to do with idol worship. Now, that's interesting when we read that god's a jealous god it means he's using that because people are worshiping idols and that's what paul's saying are we trying to arouse the lord's jealousy you see this whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols it's not about the meat it's not about the idols I mean, we've talked about this. I I told you about the day-old meat section at Wegmans where they're offering meat sacrifice to idols now. Just kidding, right? Scott talked about it last week. How does this apply to us? None of us would have to worry at any grocery store where you go shopping that you might have to buy meat sacrifice. It's not going to happen. So what in the world does this have to do with us in 2021? Well, we've said that it has to do with issues for which there we call gray areas, right? There's no real clear-cut direction from God, or at least so we think. And so we have to figure out, so what is it that God would have us to do? And I want to say to you folks, I believe that that is a good application. And, And so what might some of those issues be that we would put into that category? Certainly alcohol would be one. Um, uh, tattoos, playing the lottery. How about birth control? You may never thought about that. My college roommate did not believe in birth control and we would have discussions back and forth in our senior year. Remember, that's when we knew everything. And I was getting married the week after graduation. He was getting married three weeks after graduation and we talked about that. And I'm like, "Steve, come on, you can't. Well, it's it's up to God." Okay, well then just put a blindfold on and walk out across the interstate. If it's up to God, if you die, you die. If you live, you live. That's how I argued. Now, we were fine. Luke came along 4 years later. Steve had a honeymoon baby. Okay, then God, okay, but is that a questionable area? Yeah, how do you figure that out? We look at scripture. How about Bible translations? How about music? How about school choice? Public school, Christian school, homeschool. Where where, where, where do you put your kids? How do you make up those choices? A lot of people are very emotional and these are, Uh, how do you figure that out? What's right? What's wrong? We look at scripture and we apply these principles But folks, I got to tell you, the more I studied this week, the more I realized this wasn't just about questionable issues and how do we decide those gray area questions. It wasn't even about the danger of demons that Paul was warning the church about. It was about rousing God's jealousy for us. And I think that's all of what verse chapters 8, 9, and 10 are about. It has to do with God being jealous for us. And that's why when we get down to the end of the chapter, and I'll get there in just a minute, it says, do everything for the glory of God. And I think sometimes we go to chapters 8, 9, and 10 because we have all of these questions that we want answered. Paul and I were just talking about that this morning and sometimes we're asking the wrong questions. We want to know, is this right? What about that? Is that wrong? Should I do that? Is it okay if I do this? Is this right? Is that wrong? And and that's kind of how we use the Bible. Listen, I don't think that's the point of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Yes, it does give us some help on understanding how do we know whether they should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Well, here in this regard, as part of a religious ceremony, he's saying, don't do it. Be willing to give up your right. But it's about God. It's about God's glory. It's about a God who jealousy wants all of us. And I don't mean all. All of us. I mean all of us individually. He wants every part of us. Each of us. Because he's jealous for us. He doesn't want divided loyalties. He doesn't want a foot in the church. And a foot in the pagan temple. He doesn't want part of us at the table of the Lord. And part of us at the table of demons. He wants all of us. And that's why he says flee idolatry, run away from anything and everything that comes between us and God. Anything that we give more time, more energy, more resources to than we do to God ought to go. It's an idol. We're trying to have our cake and eat it too. And God says, no. I want all of you. Look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 34. Now, I'm going to read it from the New 2020 New American Standard for you, but you'll get the gist of it in whatever translation you have as well but Psalm 106 starting in verse 34 and Psalm 106 has been a rehearsal of the history of the nation of Israel and it gets down you could read through it and and see the familiar things, the Red Sea and the bitter waters and all of the rest of it and how they rebelled. But we get to verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them. And you remember at one point when God told the nation of Israel to totally destroy the enemy nations and Saul didn't do it. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them. But they got, listen to this, they got involved with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Do you see the writer to the, uh, right here of 106 is, is equating idols and demons? And he says... Verse 38, and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was defiled with the blood. So they, Israel, became unclean in their practices and were unfaithful in their deeds. What was it they were doing? They got involved with the nations. They learned their practices. We already know that back before they even had a king, back before the first king, the nation of Israel said to Moses, hey, we want a king. What? Just like all the other nations around us. We want to be just like the rest of them. That's what we're reading right here. Got involved with the nations and learned their practices. So they became unclean in their practices and were unfaithful in their deeds. Listen, these, this was the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. They had one foot in the nation of Israel and another foot in the pagan tribes and nations around them. They wanted their cake and wanted to eat it too. And look at verse 40. Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people. Wow. The Lord was angry with his people. Why? Because they wanted to eat their cake and have it too. Or have their cake and eat it too, right? You get the idea. Their loyalties were divided between God and the nations around them, just like everyone around them. Which begs the question, when we talk about more people more like Jesus. That we need to be more like Jesus. Scripture is clear all throughout the New Testament that we need to become more like Jesus. When we are like the nation of Israel, when we are like the Corinthian church and get involved with the nations and the peoples in the land and learn their practices, who are we more like? Jesus or the people around us? Who are we more like? When people see us, when people know us and they look at us, do they see Jesus? Do they see somebody who's more like Jesus than anybody they know and have no question whatsoever that we are a follower of Jesus or do they see just another citizen on this earth with divided loyalties i'm not going to take the time to uh, read for you second corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through chapter 7 verse 1 write it down second corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 through chapter 7 verse 1 see what paul says about separation from Satan and those who he represents. So what does all this mean? You see, I think we can go to these chapters and get answers on those issues that we think are gray areas or questionable. Yes, there are those issues. So let me summarize what does it mean? What, how do we deal with the issues? Well, number one, enjoy your freedom, your rights. But, in other words, use them. But if your freedom, if your rights cause a believer to sin, give them up. If our freedom causes our brother or sister to sin, give up that freedom. Don't exercise that right. That's chapter eight. Secondly, don't use your freedom or your rights if your freedom, if your rights hinder the gospel. We find that in the middle of chapter nine. Don't use your freedom if it hinders the gospel, but use your freedom to do everything you can to win as many as possible to Christ. Did you ever think about that as the use of our freedom, as the use of the rights that God has given us? We want to talk about, we have liberty. I got Christian liberty, you can't tell me what to do. I have liberty. Do we ever think that those liberties are also to allow us to do everything possible to win as many as possible to Christ? We usually think we want answers to these kinds of questions for us. When in fact, if we're focused on winning as many as possible to Christ, who cares? We don't even go there. We don't even ask those questions. It doesn't matter. Number three, with all of this freedom, with all of the rights we had, and back in the beginning of chapter 10, Paul rehearsed, yet great advantages it was to be the people of God that they had, wow. With all of that freedom, with all of those rights, don't disqualify yourself from the prize. Remember, when temptations come, God has made a way to escape. Chapter 10. You know what we're talking about here? Our rights, our freedoms are all about God and his glory, about winning people to Christ. That's more people. Winning people to Christ, more people, and helping believers grow. That's more like Christ. Winning people to Christ, helping believers to grow and to mature. That's more people, more like Jesus. More people more like Jesus. Do you see that? If you read through chapters 8, 9, and 10 and understand that's what Paul is saying, you say, really? That's, you're just kind of reading our mission, what, what we believe our mission. We're reading, no, it's there. Look at this. It's about our willingness to do all, to do all, to be all for the glory of God. Look at verse 32. Scott read these, preached on these last week. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. That's talking about we don't want to cause a brother or sister to sin by the use of our freedom or our rights. That's making them, that's not letting them be more like Jesus. And then he says, verse 33, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. What? So that they may be saved. You see that we're using our rights as believers, our Christian liberties, our freedoms to do what? What? to build up the body, to help people to become more like Jesus and to reach more, to win as many as possible. More people for the glory of God. And then if you don't think it's more people, more like Jesus, look what Paul says, follow my example. Verse 1, chapter 11, as I follow the example of Christ. What's Paul saying? I want to be like Christ. I'm following the example of Christ. I can't imagine saying that to anybody. And yet we should. Are you ready to say before God, hey, if you follow me, you're okay. If I said to my kids while they were growing up and going through high school with all of the issues that are there, questions to answer, and I said to them, listen, in answer to all your questions, you just follow my example and you'll be fine. Wow. Paul sang it to his church in Corinth. You follow my example. How could he do that? Because he's proud and arrogant? Absolutely not. Because he was following the example of Christ. And so what are we talking about here? We've been saying it since we started First Corinthians. This kind of a little bit of a theme that we've had. Somewhere we'll get it. There we go. God's. Holy people must become what they already are. God's holy people, if you've been saved, that's who you are. You're one of God's holy people. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross for us, shed his blood, gave his life, the Lord's Supper. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, You are saved, your sins are forgiven, you're guaranteed eternal life in heaven. You are one of God's holy people, but we must continue to live that salvation now. We must become what we already are. We have been declared to be right before God, God's holy people. Now we're told we need to live like it. That's what Paul says over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians. As God's holy people live like who you already are.